You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Morning. Morning. <laughs> there was a nice little high-pitched morning over here somewhere. That was fantastic. Um, you know, I guess the best way to, to talk, to start this, and well, I guess the best way to transition here is um, there are times in our lives when things get dark, aren't there? I, you, you know this, you feel this, you run into it. If you haven't, then share with me something, right? Like help me understand how you're getting through this life without running into some darkness. Because that is not the case with everybody I've ever met in my entire life. And I just need to let you guys know that um, the one thing I can tell you over and over and over again is um, uh, we went to Denver yesterday. And in Denver, we went through some of the stuff in the Natural Science Museum. And in there, there's these gemstones all over the place. Where do they put the gemstones? What's the backdrop? What does it look like? It's black. It's dark as dark as night. Why? Because against the backdrop of darkness, that's the only way you can see the glimmer that's truly the treasure stacked in front of you. And I don't want to be glib about darkness. I don't want to be glib about the way that you feel sometimes. But I just need to let you know that the backdrop of darkness is it is God's way of showing the light. Um, it is God's way of showing you the preciousness and the beauty of the light that you have. It's the way of God showing and revealing to you that there is hope beyond this world and beyond this life. There has to be. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And uh, for those of you who are going through really tough times, I feel you. I feel you. And, uh, and you're, you have to know that our prayers are going to be with you. And if you ever need somebody to talk to, you can call Nick. And myself, I'm not trying to push that off. You, you can call both of us. You can call any of the elders of the church. You can call people. Here's the deal. We don't do this darkness stuff alone. We don't carry our own burdens. We do carry our own burdens, but we are commanded in Scripture and we are given a charge to carry one another's burdens. This is what church is. This is how we become the church. It's not coming to a thing on a Sunday. It is taking from here the things that have been laid out in front of you, the heaviness and the darkness, and coming up alongside to your brother and sister and saying, I have got your back because we don't have that in this world. We don't. So I just need to let you guys know that. Um, and I love the fact that this church is a family that can pray for those things and can, uh, and can walk alongside. All right, uh, let's dive in today. Um, we... We're going through this series that we call Meaty Faith and Reflections on the Incarnation. And, you know, this is one of those beautiful things that is set against a backdrop too, right? Like Jesus came into this world in the midst of one of the darkest times in human history. Like there was darkness all around. There was, there was, there were people dying. It was not a very great time in human existence. And yet Jesus comes and shines his light amidst, amongst that, uh, that darkness. And <coughs> that is a beautiful thing. Is a beautiful thing. And so we've been studying this process of what does it mean that Jesus came? What does it mean for the divine one, the one who created all things, the creator God, to take on human flesh and come and walk among us as the Bible teaches? And this is the pattern. This is the reasoning for Christmas. This is the, the reason why we celebrate. <coughs> Excuse me. Colby, can you grab me some water? <coughs> uh, sorry. 
Uh, this is the reason why we celebrate Christmas. <coughs> Colby's going to get water. <laughs> you guys can pray for me. I haven't had a cough all week, and all of a sudden it settles in right now. <coughs> it's what? The cats. Hey, speaking of the cats, that's actually in my notes. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> You're wondering what in the world is Doug talking about? Thank you, Colby. So, speaking of darkness, let's talk about cats. <laughs> um, we just got done talking about Nick and Lori and their their companion for the last 17 years, their dog. And, and people can get, we can get attached to animals, unless they're cats. Um, and uh, yesterday I did something that I never thought I would ever do. No, it wasn't yesterday. It was Friday. I thought I, I did something that I never thought I would ever do in my entire life. And I ended up in Denver, Colorado, with my son and my wife at a cat cafe. <laughs> Yeah, a what? <laughs> okay, Cat Cafe in Denver is actually the essentially the Humane Society. It's an adoption center that they built into this fancy cafe where you get to sit around and drink coffee and pet cats. There were 16 cats crawling around everywhere, all up for adoption, and uh, they were all you know all kinds of ranges of personalities and all that type of stuff, right? Now, not necessarily something that filled me with awe and wonder and joy because. They're cats, right? We have two cats because our son, our youngest, Jonas, he loves cats, right? Jonas, yep, cats, thumbs up, (coughs) loves cats. And uh, we have two cats because, first of all, cats cats can't be alone because they... You know, we'll kill humans if they're alone. So, um, so we, we have two cats. Um, Jonas, uh, we, we felt as though an animal would help give him some, you know, stability in his life and something to care for and all that type of stuff. But, uh, you know, it turns out that cats don't like actually love each other or love you. So you like, uh, but anyway, so we have these two cats. And so Jonas loves cats. And so we're taking the kids out for, uh, for trips for Christmas. That's the Christmas present this year. And the one thing he chose to do is to go to Denver and go to the cat cafe. <clears throat> now, Jonas, how did that cat cafe make you feel? Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. He was glowing. The kid was all filled up with all kinds of happiness because there was cute, fluffy things all over the place that were ready to bite him and steal his soul, but there were still cute, fluffy things, right? All over the place, and they were playing with him. <clears throat> now, that brings, that, that, that brings Jonas a, a lot of enjoyment, a lot of happiness. And that's very strange of him. But it's okay. It exists there for a reason. How about you? What are some things that when you're like depleted, when you're not feeling great, when you have had darkness in your life, when you have been really uh, joyless, what is something that you do that fills you up and gives you total enjoyment? Like, you know that moment when you're sitting down and you're like, oh yeah, I could do this for a while. Greeting. What? Everywhere but his room. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Creedon does do the dishes in order to calm down a little bit. Parents, aren't you jealous? Yeah. That's right. We're doing something right. Uh huh. Uh huh. And that brings me great joy when I see him working. I'm like, oh yeah, I can do this forever. Yeah. Okay. What about Tracy? Go ahead, Sally. When my Oh, when the granddaughter lights up because she sees you and says, Hi, Grandma, because she wants cookies. I mean, who are we to guess her motivation? But it might be true. Okay, so granddaughters, right? What about the rest of you guys? What are some things that, like, they just fire you up, they light you up, they fill you up? Go ahead, Carrie. 
Mary Hallmark movie for two weeks now. <coughs> Wait, that fills you up? No, it fills her up. Oh, okay, okay. Yes, and uh, my... Paper towels. Yeah, you got to buy boxes of Kleenexes, like crates of Kleenexes for the Christmas season because Hallmark's going to start playing movies. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Go, what are you going to say, Mary? Not true at all. Not true at all. I, would take, I, mean, I like Hallmark movies. Yes, a little two wheel therapy, uh huh, on the motorcycle, riding through the hills. I can relate. I love nothing. I've never had a bad day riding. Even when my bike fell apart, like systematically all the way up to Billings at one time, I still enjoyed. I still enjoyed the ride, right? Even though it took me nine hours, I think, to drive up to Billings, which should only take five. Go ahead, Josiah. You talk sarcastic. I can't tell if you're being serious or not right now. <laughs> Strange. Right. Yeah, okay, so his untrained sarcasm fills, jo- fills Josiah with joy. Yes, go ahead, um, Christina. Family that I can talk to, I guess. Oh, family all around you. Um, also, I see you guys are all wearing Christmassy colors, which is, I know, I know of this. Well, he's got his red coat somewhere. Yep, so I know that of the Straub family. When they match, they're filled with joy. Go ahead, Gina. Shopping. Shopping. <laughs> how do you feel about that, John? It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's fine. Just get her her own credit card. It'll be fine. I'm sure that'll work out just fine. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah, so every December, Laura, I mean, December is rough for, I don't know if, why it's rough for us, but both of us kind of go through a really low time in December. And so Laura gets a stack of books and she could just read the entire month of December. In fact, she got how many books on, last week in the library, I think you rented seven books. She's through three of them or four of them already or something like that. So, yeah, it's a pretty serious deal. Go ahead, Stephen. Uh, uh, one is when I get ready to go to the gym and work out. That's, one of my biggest highs, and when I wake up early in the morning, because I wake up to joy, and knowing it's going to be there, so I start out my day like, good morning, joy, I'm going to correct Yeah, okay, so starting your day off, starting your day off right brings you great joy, correct. doing the right thing during the day brings you great joy, gotcha, gotcha, go ahead, Lori. Camping at Castle Peak, that moment when you step out of that tent and you go... You, Nick. No, I'm just kidding. What you doing? <laughs> that is true as well. Go ahead, Winter. People. Yes, Winter people binges. She and Colby are a little the same, actually. They get a little out of control with the people binging. What were you going to say, Matt? I was going to say hiking slash walking my dog or both. Or both. Yeah. And if you've ever seen their dog, Patty's pretty cute. Go ahead, Stub. Yeah, when, uh... I closed my eyes and sat down on my seat, and my cat, Elsa, jumped up in my lap and her head back. Yeah, yeah. Yep, there's another cat thing. Yep, yep, you and Jonas can talk a little later. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Petting my cats. Petting the cats. Yep, yep, indeed. Kyle? Driving alone. Driving alone. alone. <laughs> Yep, Creedon just stepped into that realm too. It's a difference between driving with your parents who are yelling at you because you're a horrible driver and driving alone and still being a horrible driver, right? Like there's a big difference between those two things. 
Yeah. Now, the reason I bring some of those things up is we would use the term, in our, in our language, we would use a common term. Like, we would say, this, this brings me great joy. Like, I enjoy this. This brings a lot of enjoyment. Man, this is, this is good, right? And it's this idea that, that we, we, we may understand a little bit of. We may scratch the surface about what joy is. But the question does remain. Jesse asked it quite, uh, quite poignantly. Is this something we really understand? Do we really understand what joy really is? C.S. Lewis defines joy as, and I'm going to murder this. It's kind of a paraphrase. But basically he says joy is the longing for something that you have tasted a fraction of yet cannot attain, cannot attain the side of heaven. That's how he defines joy. That joy is actually a longing for something you've tasted but has faded and you're longing for the fulfillment of that. Think about all the things that you just said, right? Like people. Unfortunately, people fade. Sometimes it's through relationships or sometimes it's through just the inevitability of life, but your people relationships sometimes fade. Cats, they can be pretty fickle, right? One moment they like you, the other moment they're slashing you with razor knives that have been attached to their hands. These things, that's what it is, is these moments of joy, these moments of enjoyment, these moments of happiness can fade. Yet the scripture also tells us that we've been filled with a joy inexpressible, a joy that cannot be expressed. And so, like I said, C.S. Lewis talks about that longing that's inside of you for tasting something that has faded, and yet now we want the, that, that completion, that feel, the, the fullness of that. And so today, we're going to take a look at joy. I don't, I don't even know how this is going to all come together, but hopefully I can... Uh, I mean, there's not, no pressure or anything, but I have to help people understand joy when I don't really understand it myself. So like most of the time, I don't understand what joy is. It's a really, really difficult thing. If it's not expressible, how in the world can I express to you what joy is? Right? And that's the problem we have, is we can talk about joy, but we're always usually talking about happiness. Because we're expressing something that we can't even feel and be fulfilled in until we're apart from this life. So we're going to look into something that Jesus says about why he came to this earth. And I'm going to have, I'm going to try to get this kind of all wrapped into this understanding of joy. Because the the reality is, guys, is I, I could probably, I mean, maybe I could try to graph out joy if I had a whiteboard or do something like that, but no matter how much you understand it up here, how am I ever going to help you feel it? Right? That's not on me. And that's not on you. You can't even conjure up joy inside of yourself. We need help. So today we're going to look in John chapter 10. We're going to look in John chapter 10. But we're going to get there in a roundabout way, just like we did last week. We're going to take a little bit of a meandering pathway through... Um, through the scriptures, and we're gonna so find John ten, but I'm also gonna have you flipping uh, flipping your Bible all over the place today uh, as we look at some things. <clears throat> um, one of the reasons I love the Book of John, uh, we actually uh, Jesse and Jamin and I had a conversation about the Book of John this week. Uh, the Book of John is by far my favorite gospel, and the reason it's my favorite gospel is because it's very, very different than the rest of the Gospels. You have three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are uh, narratives. They are, they have, those are storylines with an agenda to them. They do have a bias to them. They're trying to prove a certain point about Jesus. Matthew is trying to talk to Jewish people, Hebrew people, about their coming king. And so he's, he's showing all these different ways that Jesus fulfilled prophecies in order to show that he's the king. 
Mark is uh, is written by John Mark, and he's writing from Peter's perspective. John Mark and Peter are related, and so there's like this there's this uh, storytelling that's happening as John Mark is relating Peter's story. And what's happening is John Mark or Mark, as we've no we've come to call, and he's telling the story about the good news that Jesus came to bring. This good news that Jesus came to bring, and he even says that it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Mark chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the good news is coming after he closes out the book of Mark. And so it's this real fast-paced account of what Jesus did and who he is and the news that he's coming to bring. And then you've got Luke, and Luke is a historian hired by another guy. He's from a different culture. He's a, he's a Greek. He's from a different culture, speaking a different language, coming in and interviewing people as eyewitnesses and talking to them about who Jesus is. And he's writing these things down, and he's by far the most detailed But he also has a a bit of an agenda in that he's trying to prove to this guy that hired him, he's trying to show him an orderly account of what happened. That's why it's got so many details. And Luke is built in a different way because he's a doctor. His mind works a little bit differently. And so he's telling the story. But John is totally different. John's written decades later. John's written like in the 90s AD, like early 90s. And and this is just before John, who's now the last walking, last living disciple. This is just before he's getting ready to pass on. And he's read these other Gospels, right? He's read the other three accounts. And he's going, okay, what do I need? Where are the blanks that I need to fill in so that there's this lasting like message of what is really going on here? And so John tries to peel back the layers of reality. He tries to open up the, the clouds for a little bit. He tries to paint this beautiful picture of what's actually happening from heaven on earth, right? So he's showing, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking from the ground up at Jesus going, okay, who is this Who is this man? Let's, let's talk about this. But John's going, I'm going to take a perspective from heaven and look down. And so he writes with these like really interesting layers. He writes with these really interesting layers. And there's some really, uh, John is one of my joys. If I sit down and read the book of John, cover to cover, I just love it. I enjoy this story so much. In fact, this is going to be my challenge to you this week. I'm just going to drop it right now. Uh, is I, I want you to read the book of John, cover to cover this week. You're all going to have a day off. I know you are. All you're going to have one day off this week. Sit down, read the book of John cover to cover. It should only take you about a half an hour. Read the entirety of the book of John from start to finish. You will not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. Oftentimes we just read a verse here and a verse there. Read the whole thing in one shot and you will absolutely love it. I love this book. It's so fantastic. When I got here six years ago, six and a half years ago, this is now our seventh Christmas here, and uh, seven years ago, yeah, all right, yeah, seven years, yeah, woo, get out of here. Okay, so uh, seven years ago we got here, and this was the first text we were marching through was the book of John. It's the first series I ever preached at this church, and so this time, Christmas time, we were actually going through, I believe, this passage. I did not steal the sermon. I could probably look it up, but it's on the internets. Uh, but when I got here six years ago, this was the first sermon series I've ever I've ever preached. Um, I taught and led Bible studies and and walked through like and uh, walked through a lengthy teaching of this uh, probably a dozen times. I've taught through the Book of John, and every time I love it. It gets so deep over and over again. So let me talk a little bit about the book of John um, just to break this up to you. Okay, John's got some interesting things. So just think about this. We're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about language issues. We're going to talk about interpretation issues. Okay, so here's the deal. John is uh, John is a Hebrew, right? He's a, he's a Jewish man. He's a Jewish man. 
But he's writing in Greek language using Greek ideas to try to communicate what he's thinking in Hebrew. Right? Anybody here bilingual besides Vanessa? No, Vanessa, bilingual, right? How hard is it to think Filipino and translate into English and create ideas? Hard. Still hard. How long have you been speaking English fluently? Because you speak, there's still quite a bit of English in the Philippines, right? So you start at an early age. Probably when you were in grade school, I guess, you were speaking fairly fluently. But it's still difficult for Vanessa, a double, a, a bilingual person, to take Filipino thought, which is a completely different culture, and translate it into American ideas or into English ideas. Now, so we've got John doing this, right? He's a Hebrew, and he's thinking Hebrew. He's thinking the Hebrew Bible. He's thinking Hebrew thought. He's thinking Hebrew theology, right? And yet he's trying to understand, he's trying to explain Jesus to a Greek culture, to a predominantly growing Greek culture, using the Greek language to explain a Hebrew idea. Then we take an English and read backwards into Greek to try to understand Hebrew. Now four language steps apart, okay? And the layers get deeper and deeper and deeper as you as you study all of this stuff. I'm going to show you a little bit of that today, and I hope this is going to kind of push its way into my point or what I want to make as a point. So like I said, John's using the Greek language and culture, but thinking with a Jewish heart and soul and trying to build a fully Christian theology. That's what he's doing right now. Okay, He's thinking, uh, he's using Greek language and culture, thinking with a Jewish heart and soul to create a fully Christian theology. That's a really big task, and this is why I love this book. It's so awesome. So, what we have to do, though, is we have to, in order to understand this passage we're about to read, I have to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that John is talking about, some of the theology that he's trying to teach. So before we look at the book at John chapter 10, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, all the way back in the book of Genesis, because everything starts, right, in Genesis, right? That's what Ray's answer all of the time. Now, if you've ever read the Bible, um, if you haven't read the Bible, that's that's good. My, that's not good. Okay, um, then read it. Okay, every so if you even just rewind back uh, 50, 60 years in this country, um, and then other countries, the, the Bible was kind of the primer for almost everything we did linguistically. It's a beautiful book. Okay, just read it, even for face value, for the fact that it's a beautiful book. But read it. Okay, start off in the book of Genesis, and here's what I want you to see in the book of Genesis. Okay, if you know what happens in the book of Genesis, the first few chapters, it talks about God's creation of the whole world. And we're not going to get into a whole lot of that because I, 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 those of you who have been in my Genesis class, we can go long on that, right? And you can walk away from here going, ah, my mind just melted, right? But if you think about the first few chapters of Genesis, God creates the earth and then he, cre- he creates the world and then he places man on this earth and then he gives man kind of the walking orders, the ruling orders of how, this, how is this going to work? How is this relationship with me How's this relationship with God going to work in the book of Genesis? And then it kind of all falls apart. It kind of all falls apart. What happens is, uh, if he, you know, spoiler alert, what happens is God says, hey, you can have everything that I've ever created, every fruit from every tree except for this one. Don't take from this because this is the boundary. This is the establishment of the rule where you're going to say, like, this, you're going to be you and I'm going to be God. You're not going to take your knowledge of good and evil from anything that's been created, but you're going to take it from the creator. And that's what God is saying in this. And then the, and then the man and the woman both take from the tree and eat what they weren't supposed to do. And their eyes are opened. 
And what God promises before that happens is He said, He says, on the day that you eat of that tree, you will, and then does anybody know the end of that? You will surely die. But you guys have been in my class. It is. You will die, die. Yeah. Okay. So in Hebrew thought. In Hebrew theology, in the way that the Hebrew language works, in order to make something bigger than it is, you just repeat the word. That's what you do. You repeat the word. Okay? So it's not just you're going to die, but it's you're going to die, die. And we translate that in our English, you will surely die. You will certainly die, right? It's like bigger than death, it's die, die. You will not just die, but you'll die, die. Right? Well, you can say it like that. Die, die. And that's what John has got in his head, right? As he's thinking with a Hebrew heart and a Hebrew soul, going, you will die, die. And, and what we see in Genesis is when they take from that tree, the types of death that come in are basically three. And this is taken from, um, this is taken from When Helping Hurts. If you've ever read that, it's a fantastic book. But go ahead and pull up the next slide here. So first, the first death we see creep in is in Genesis 3, we see a death between, uh, in, in, in relationships. The first relationship we see die is between God and man, right? And God and man, this relationship dies. The primary thing that happens is first, when the, when the man and the woman take from the tree that God tells them not to, there's this loss of intimacy with God and this closeness with the God that created us. In fact, the Bible even goes so far as to say that when God comes walking, they hide themselves from Him, which is both silly and sad. Right? Like as, as though you could hide yourself from the God who created you, right? Like they, they hide themselves in the shrubbery. They kind of ditch down into a bush and God says, hey, where are you? And he asks the question, where are you? Like, which is, come on up, man. Knock, knock that off. But as you read the text, what you see is the, the voice and the presence of our, our good shepherd, the one who's supposed to be walking with them in the cool of the day, walking with them alongside of them, leading them and guiding them, the one who's supposed to be giving them truth and leading them into all truth. That voice is now distant because they have moved away from it. And so there's this death of intimacy and closeness with God Almighty as Adam and Eve become estranged from God. And what happens is this story, like this is a super poetic, beautiful story talking about this ripple effect that goes out into man as you're asking the question, what went wrong with this place? What went wrong with this place? Well, what's going wrong is you can't hear from God. The one who created you, the one who's supposed to be leading you into all truth, you can't hear from Him anymore. There's now this, this, this barricade, this barrier between you and God that we would commonly call sin. So there's a death of relationship between God and man, but it's not just that. There's also, as God lays this out in Genesis 3, there's also death of relationship between man and man. Now all of a sudden there's, uh, there's strife between mankind. There's going to be anger and there's going to be war and there's going to be battle and there's going to be evil and there's going to be hatred and there's going to be discord. In fact, there's even going to be battle within the human home between husband and wife as they fight for supremacy in the home and as these things happen, like there's going to be this breakdown between man and man. And you see that ripple out through the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, the very next story is Cain and Abel and you see what happens right there as Cain kills Abel brutally. Smashing him overhead, beating him down, all of that stuff. Killing him in a field and leaving him dead. Kills his own brother. So you have this death between man and man, and every single one of us lives in this right now. Like The human mind asks these questions all the time. Why is it that I can't get along with my boss? Why is it that I can't get along with my coworkers or my fellow students? Why can't I get along with my family during Christmas? Why can't I do this? Well, because there's a breakdown between man and man. And you live in this. You live in this. All of the time. 
And it has to do with our selfish motivations, other people's selfish motivations, other people's selfish motivations that created selfish motivations inside of us, other people's sins and activity that destroyed other people who then destroy other people, all of that stuff. You see it ripple out. And most of you live in this right now. But in Genesis 3, it doesn't stop there. It's not just a brokenness between God and man and between man and man, but it's also between man and creation, man and nature. In fact, the Bible even goes so far as to say, hey man, you're going to work the ground, you're going to serve the ground, you're going to, you're going, you're going to till from it, you're going to try to produce, and what's going to produce is thorns and thistles. You're going to produce nothing but agony. You're going to eat by the sweat of your brow, and in futility you're going to serve it all the day long. And we definitely feel this. You know that feeling you get when you get up in the morning and you struggle with motivation for another day? You know that feeling? It's coming tomorrow. You know which one I'm talking about? When you get up and going, do I have to do this again? That is that feeling. That's that futility. That's the first taste of it. You know those times when you're facing decisions and neither of them are great decisions, yet something has to be done? It's another taste of it. It's like, man, everywhere I look, there's going to be hardship and hardship. There's no clear, there's no clear decision here. It's the air we actually breathe is this brokenness between man and the world around us. And so in Genesis, right, like the Hebrew thought that John comes with, the Hebrew soul that John comes with is he's going, what's wrong with this world? Well, it's dead, dead. It's not just death around here. It's dying, dying, right? Like it's, it's a big thing. We're living in this world that is really, really broken and really, really lost. But now... Step into the book of John in John chapter 10. I know that was a really long-winded uh, introduction, but I want you to understand this because there's something super cool that happens here. John chapter 10, verse 1. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the sheep, shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now this is the voice of Jesus, right? And he's talking about who he is. He says, I tell you the truth, this man, the man who does not enter, and so he launches into this metaphor about a shepherd and a sheep. Somebody who, what does a shepherd do? They lead sheep by their what? By their, what? By their mane? No, they lead sheep by their voice. And by a big old stick. By a big old stick. They lead sheep by the power of their voice and a big old stick. And he's talking about this. Now, verse 5. But they will never, the sheep will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize, and you see it right here, a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Now, I don't blame them. Like, this is a little convoluted. Therefore, Jesus said again, like he clarifies this, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and out and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he comes, or when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks and the flock scatter it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. 
I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. And he goes on with this metaphor about sheep and shepherds. And it can be awfully convoluted. But shepherds are a group of people who, they, they are leading sheep, they're leading another group of creatures, and they're doing that with their voice, and they're doing that for their good. And what Jesus is talking about is he's actually hearkening to like Ezekiel and Isaiah, and they talk about shepherds all the time. And so in Hebrew thinking, the shepherd is a leader. The shepherd is the one who is supposed to be leading the people of Israel. And Jesus is comparing and contrasting kind of two, two types of, uh, of sheep keepers here. And he, he compares two types of shepherds. One is a thief. One is a thief. And the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy the sheep. The thief comes to use the sheep for their own, excuse me, yeah, the thief comes to use the sheep for their own good. But the shepherd comes to lay his life down for the sheep, to lead them into good pastures, to help them see that they are, that they are taken care of. And to help them to see where they need to go to have life. And what Jesus is doing here is he's painting this beautiful picture about two completely different worldviews, two completely different realities. Like there's this reality where there are people who are going to lead you into death and destruction. And there are people, there's, there's one person, there is the good shepherd who's going to lead you into life and hope and joy. Then Jesus says this powerful thing in John chapter 10, verse 10. And this is our purpose statement for the day. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come. Remember, we're studying. Why did Jesus say that he came? Why does Jesus say that we celebrate this Christmas thing? What is, what is this all about? He says, I have come that they, you, the sheep, they may have life and have it to the full. Now, this is where I need to make a a brief connection. I want you to see this. What John is literally doing here in the Greek is he says, I have come that they may have life, that they may have have it. We translate it here, have it to the full. He actually, in, in Greek, which this isn't a Greek idea, this is a Jewish idea, he literally says that they may, that, 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 that life they may have, have. It's not just have it a little bit, right? Like it's have, have it. Just like it's not just dying a little bit, but die, die, right? This is the exact reversal that John is talking about here, is that Jesus has come to give life so that we may have, have it. We may possess it in the fullest and complete and total way. That we may have the uh, the antithesis of what was lost all that time ago. That we may have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus is saying here that He's come to counteract everything that went wrong all the way back in that garden. That he may, He's going to counteract everything that went wrong. Where He's going to bring healing back to the relationship between God and man. And healing back into the relationship between man and man, and healing back into the relationship between God or between man and the world around him. It's such a big thing that he's saying here, and it's really interesting how quickly we can pass over it. So, how does Jesus do this? Well, what he does is he he changes the things that have gone horribly wrong. How does he bring oneness between God and man? Well, 
if you've been around Christian churches for a while, it's the thing we talk about when we talk about His sacrifice on the cross, but it is literally the fulfillment of everything in the Hebrew Bible that talks about atonement, right? Like He's the atoning sacrifice where His blood is shed for you, making you one with God. Making you one with God, canceling the debt of your sin, canceling the barrier of that sin that keeps you from God. And His blood is shed for us and covers us and says, you will now be one with God the Father because that sin is a barricade and a barrier between God's voice and your, and, and your ears. That sin is a barricade between your heart and God's heart. That sin is a barricade between your spirit and God's spirit. And Jesus came to remove that and bring you into a relationship with Him and the Father. As they are one. But he doesn't just do that, right? Like he shows you what it takes to love the world. He shows you what it takes to love the world as he stretches out his arms and is nailed to that cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he declares this out in front of everybody and says, this is what it takes to love. This is what it takes to heal the world. This is what it takes to have relationships healed. Is It takes sacrifice and it takes forgiveness. And you can't sacrifice and you can't love and you can't forgive anyone unless you understand what it means to be forgiven and loved first. And so we ask ourselves the question, why can't I get along with my boss? Why can't I get along with my coworker? Why can't I get along with my family, especially at Christmas? Why can't I get, why can't I get along with people? Why does it always fall apart? Well, the answer is only this. It's because we need to understand love and forgiveness. We need to understand love and forgiveness. What does it take to get along with your coworker who doesn't understand you and keeps stepping on your toes over and over and over again? Sure doesn't take ramping it up and trying to get back at him by sending a glitter bomb, which, so you know, I can give you a link to a website, but you know, that's neither here nor there. We can only love because God loves us first. We can only forgive just as much as He's forgiven us. So love and forgiveness, like that's what Jesus came to do, is to show us how to relate in this world, is to love people at a great sacrifice to yourself, and to forgive them when they simply take and kill you. But then, we're also reunited with purpose. You're reunited with a whole new purpose. God removes those those blinders off of us and says, you know what, you have been put here for my purposes, and my purposes are global and eternal. They're not simply your world. They're not simply small. They're not simply this life now. My purposes are global and they're eternal, and I want you to sacrifice, to lay down your life, and to go to the ends of the earth in order to teach people about me and show about the sacrifice that I have given. That is the life that we have been reunited with. And so as death separates God and man, and as death separates man and man, and as death separates man and nature, as that full dying death, die, die, settles in, Jesus says, I have come to give you life so that you can have, have it. So that you can have, have it. And and, and it's interesting, he doesn't put the emphasis on life, life. It's not that. It's so that you can have, have it. It's not so that it sits in your hand and falls out and runs away. So you can have, have it completely and fully. So not only does Jesus compare and contrast these two shepherds, the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy, but he compares the shepherd that comes to bring life, but he also compares two kinds of life, and two kinds of, two kinds of life that we can have. And one is this life where 
We would say we see in the Bible it's life of the flesh, life in the flesh. And the other is life in the spirit. And, and the fascinating thing is you can even see it in the imagery. Like you can see it. It's almost intuitive, right? Like if I have just life in the flesh and I empty everything of myself, it's an empty life that I'm living. It's an empty life I'm following after. If I'm following to, to, to follow this thing, if I'm, if I'm living to follow this thing that has whims and has needs and has desires and all that stuff, and I empty myself of any spiritual reality, any realness inside of me, you end up with this life of discord and anger and jealousy and hatred and backbiting and and manipulating and controlling and selfishness. That's what you end up with. Why? Because that's what this thing wants when I'm not guided by a spirit. And what Jesus comes to do is He comes to pour His Spirit inside of us so that we can have, have life. And it's a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And above all those things, there is no law. Jesus came to give us that life. He came to give us that life. And He puts His Spirit inside of us so that we can never lose it. Because it's not ours. It's not our spirit. It's not our our life. It's not our flesh. It's Jesus's. And He gave it to us. He poured it into us. And so what we get to do each and every morning is we get to wake up and say, this is not my own life. This is not my own life. Holy Spirit, I need you to come. I need you to fill me with. I need you to fill me this very day, because otherwise, if I get up and I live this life as though it was mine, I'm going to mess it up, and death's going to follow. Amen. So my challenge to you this week really is: read the entirety of the Book of John. Sit down, read it. Sit down with a notebook if you have to. Write all kinds of questions out. Bring those questions to me. I'd love to sit and talk to you about the Book of John. It's like my favorite thing. But I want you to know that this. This week, I want you to know as you get up every morning, maybe you just need to get up and pray the prayer. It's just, Lord, thank you for giving me life. Help me to have habit today. Lord, thank you for giving me life. Help me to have habit today. And remember that that's what He came to do is pour His Spirit into you. Pour His complete and total Spirit into you and counteract that separation between God between others and between this world. And as He does that, He fills you with purpose. He fills you with the ability to love and forgive. And He fills you with the ability to be able to hear His voice, just like Jesus is talking about here, where He becomes the Good Shepherd, and the sheep can hear and know His voice. That is what living life in the Spirit is. May we have, have life this Christmas. And may you have, have joy. And may we find our lives full and complete. I'll simply close on this, is that, you guys, I'm with with you. I don't think I understand joy. I don't even understand what it means to have, have life. I just talked about it for the last 40 minutes. Isn't that great? Let me peel back the the facade here. This is what a pastor does. He gets gets up and preaches on stuff he doesn't understand for 40 minutes. You can do that too. I'm sure you can. I simply want you to have joy and have life. I don't understand it. I can't lead you into it. I can't help you. I can't give you some 12-step program or 7-step program or 3-step program or 4-step program to help you have fullness of life. I can't. The only thing I can do is give you a 1-step program, come to Jesus and ask for life, and know that He says that I've come to give you life so that you can have, have it. So we should pray. Jesus, I don't. 
no. <laughs> I wish that I could just magically give my friends life. I wish that I could walk around and touch them on the head or sprinkle some fairy dust on them or something like that and then they'd have life. But we all know that no, no secret, no magic that is found on this in this existence can give us fullness of life. Because everything we've ever tried gives us a fraction of a little taste of joy and leaves us longing for the fullness of that. And so Lord, I just come to you and ask that you would give us fullness of joy, that you would fill our lives, that you would give us life, that you would give us life overflowing, that you would give us joy that just bubbles out of us and that we would have have it. That it would never leave, that it would never fade, that it would be bulletproof, as Nick said. That no matter what loss we run against, no matter what struggle we come against, Lord, we would know that we have, have life. And I know that, I know the bigness of that when you're facing things like growing tumors. When you're facing things like a brother-in-law who's in the hospital. When you're facing things like the loss of, of a companion that's been with you for years. When you're facing the loss of those things, I know how big it is. And how hard it is to say, may we have fullness of life. May we have heaven. But Lord, I pray that you would make our joy bulletproof. That we wouldn't just walk around skipping and smiling and singing and, and pretending. It's not about that but that we would have this surety that's deep down inside of us that would lead us forward as we walk in step with you, clinging to you and saying, no matter what comes, hell or high water, my God will be glorified in every single thing. And may we wake up each morning this week saying, Lord, thank you for the life. May I have, have it today. Fill our hearts and our heads with you, Lord. Give us your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.